Hi folks, so we are going to talk about Act 2, Scene 2. Um, it's quite a long scene, a lot happens in it, so I'm going to split this podcast into two parts. The first part is going to look up to line 185, 182, 185-ish, and then the second uh, podcast will be uh, from that point onwards to the end of the scene. Um, so we find ourselves back in Rome, and it is the anticipated meeting of Caesar and Antony, and we know it's going to be um, lots and lots and lots of different levels of awkwardness um, for the first bit. Um, but before we get to that meeting, we find Ina Barbus um, talking with Lepidus, and he kind of refuses Lepidus's request to kind of make sure that Antony shows restraint uh, when he meets Caesar. Um, Lepidus is kind of like a bit of a mediator in this uh, scene. Um, he kind of wants to join the two of them together and to kind of make them friends again. So he doesn't want Antony to rile Caesar up um, in many ways, and, and Lepidus refuses to kind of encourage that. Um, and then when Antony and Caesar do eventually come in, they come in from opposite sides. So we'll talk about the stagecraft at that point. Um, and Lepidus, God, if he had a theme tune in this scene, it would be, why can't we be friends? Um, he's kind of pleading for um, cooperation and for friendship. He's he's maybe, you could argue, the most kind of rational person in this scene. Um, the other two are kind of very much led by emotion, which is interesting because we've talked about before how Rome should be rational and unemotional in many ways. Um, but Lepidus is kind of like, you need to put it behind you guys because there's a there's a bigger threat at sea from Pompey. Um, so let's go through it from, from kind of line, line one onwards. So Lepidus asks Inobarbus to entreat your captain to soft and gentle speech. In other words, can you calm Antony down? Um, because if he comes in angry, it's it's going to make Caesar angry and we're not going to get anywhere. Um, Inobarbus, however, refuses. He says, I shall entreat him to answer like himself. Um, in other words, that to tell Antony to behave anything that's not like his normal reaction would be, seems false. Um, if Antony's an impassioned or angry person, that that just needs to come out. Um, there's a description of if Caesar move him, in other words, if Caesar, Caesar annoys him, let Antony look over Caesar's head and speak as loud as Mars. And that's another repeated allusion um, to saying Antony has to be truthful to himself. If he's angry, he will kind of look over him and speak as, lo as loud as Mars, the god of war at that point. Um so it's just something to kind of note that again that other other reference to Anthony being kind of godlike um or 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 greater in status in many ways. Um Lepidus, however, is like, you know, it's not a time for private stomaching. Um in other words, there are bigger threats. There's there's kind of you know threat at sea from Pompey, and that image of private stomach and that metaphor kind of suggests that they need to put their personal differences aside. But ultimately what we're going to find is that it's exactly that private stomaching that dominates the the kind of conflict between Antony and Caesar rather than the bigger picture. Something we could be very critical over about both of them for. Um, so if we kind of keep moving on down, you can have a little look through it further, but we get the idea that Antony and Ventidius and then Caesar and Messianus and Agrippa by another door. Um, those two stage directions kind of visually stress how the two men are separate in this scene. Uh, and the visual kind of semiotics of the, 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 the three members of the triumvirate split onto different parts of the stage do suggest um, political disjoint and that helps to create tension because we know that the first time they're going to meet formally is that it's going to be awkward, it's going to be um, tense for us as an audience. Um, and Lepidus is the person who plays the middleman because he's stuck in between the two of them and if you look at his speech from kind of line 20-ish onwards, he, he tries to use flattery um, as a way of um, 
kind of diminishing the tension in the room. He just he says noble friends, um, noble partners, for example. So that repetition of that. He says, touch you the sorrowest points with sweetest terms. Um, and that oxymoron does stress that ultimately, can you speak nicely to one another? <laughs> um, and we're, we're going to have a, a see whether or not they um, pay any attention to Lepidus' speech. Unfortunately, they don't. Um, and actually, there is a reference that Anthony says to spoken well, were we before our armies into fight I should do this so in other words that yes if there were onlookers and people watching then yes this is maybe the approach that I would take but it's not the case now you might be wondering why is there a flourish there because the men have been in the scene but it's with the flourish that we get a sense that it's now formal um, and that it's only after Lepidus's play that the kind of formalities take place and that the conversation between um, Antony and, and Caesar and where they're getting their differences out really come to the forefront um, and we get that lovely little bit welcome to Rome thank you sir sit sit sir nay then and it's essentially just political posturing um you know they it's it's awkward because Caesar asks Antony to sit Antony says sit in other words you sit it's kind of like which man's going to play the first card um and it's 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 tense um and if we skip on to kind of line 35 onwards this whole conversation if we want to call it a conversation in many ways it's a bit of an argument um between Antony and Caesar structurally takes on um essentially an accusation and then a defence from a character. So if we look, Caesar does accuse Antony of quite a lot, and then Antony then defends it or kind of knocks it back or asks a question in order to get Caesar to, to flesh out what he means a little bit more. And it's it's something which is deeply uncomfortable and unsettling as an audience because we know that the threat up by, by sea is, is imminent. There are bigger things to, bigger fish to fry in many ways, and they just don't seem to be bothered. Um, but there is a formality in the tone that's um, adopted, and there is a coolness from Caesar, um, as well as from Antony too. So if you have a little look um, down on, for example, line 40, 45-ish, um, Antony's like, you know, my being in Egypt, what was it to you? Like, what business of it was yours? He says, well, none, technically, but if you did practice on my state, you being in Egypt might be my question. In other words, if you were meeting people formally as the as a kind of in the rule of Rome, then it's my business. So again, that's just worthwhile putting a little star there in terms of ideas about public and private identities start to come out into play here. Antony's question, how intend you practiced, is it seems provocative. It really does. Um, and in, in many ways, Caesar's a much more of a hot-headed character compared to Antony here. He says, um, your wife and brother made wars upon me, and their contest uh, contested contestation was themed for you. You were the word of war. Um the pronouns are really accusatory at that point. He's like, you, 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 your wife, your brother made war at me, you were the were the reason why I was attacked. And Antony revokes you do mistake your business and that kind of bit embittered repartee where he almost takes the pronoun and then throws it back is essentially like you're wrong my brother never did urge me in this act so in other words no they they acted on their own I had no role in it um so kind of back on um and there is that kind of reference Anthony uses uh, um of this my letters before did satisfy you if you'll patch a quarrel as matter whole you have to make it with it not must not be with this Anthony kind of in many ways is like move on we've talked about this already um stop kind of focusing on past issues um as a way of kind of trying to dismiss maybe um the the kind of that Anthony 
did mess up a little bit. He should have he should have kind of supported supported Caesar at that point, but Caesar sees that he's he's kind of um being reckless um with him and not supporting him in, in with this kind of civil war. Um Caesar says you praise yourself by laying defects of judgment to me. In other words, like uh, that you um make yourself bigger by saying essentially uh, that I was the person in the wrong or I'm the person in the wrong when actual fact it's it's you you're the problem um and Anthony rebuts that he's like not so not so this is this is an argument and we have to remember that this happens publicly as well in in kind of open court in many ways um so people are watching this subordinates are watching this too he does kind of say Anthony's like well look I can't can't control my wife he says uh, online kind of 65 to 70 as for my wife i would you had her spirit in such another the third of the world is yours which with a snaffle you may pierce easy but not such a wife um he kind of is somewhat derogatory at that point to towards his his wife his dead wife fulvia that she was hard to control he describes you know the third of the world is yours with which a snaffle you may pierce easy and a snaffle um is kind of like a, a bridle bit for a horse so in other words you could control the, the third of the world much easier than you could control my wife Fulvia um and in many ways he kind of says that she had a spirit in, a, in another that he praises her feistiness um Anthony obviously has a type he likes strong women um and he likes women that are maybe a little bit troublesome or difficult to control we, we've seen that with Cleopatra already so what, why not with Fulvia um Enobar was then just to kind of lighten the situation whether he says this kind of loud enough for other people to hear um is is debatable but he says you know would we all had such wives that the men might go to wars with the women um it's it offers us an element of kind of light relief at that point um in terms of what he's saying about women um if we skip on to the next bit then Anthony starts to um kind of saying like it, it wasn't my fault I can't control what my wife or my brother does um if I'm not there Caesar starts to say then I wrote to you when riding in Alexandria you did pocket up my letters and with the taunts did jibe my missive out of audience and actually Caesar is right we've seen that as an audience that Antony refused to listen to the letter um, and the messenger and instead was focused on sport with Cleopatra. Um, now Antony doesn't say no that's not true he actually says yes he fell upon me you admitted then so in other words yeah when he came in I was actually not, not focused on that and he says but the next day I told him of myself and was as much as to have asked him pardon so Anthony in many ways does kind of say yeah you're right I did listen to him for the first point but I, I kind of caught myself on and then I did listen to him um, and Anthony in many ways at least he's being truthful and he's being honest and that is something that we have to admire um, he doesn't lie in order to see a face with Caesar um, and there is there is an element of honour that comes up then in the next passage that we, we kind of need to think about when we consider Anthony it doesn't work with Caesar he's so angry and this seems personal now, doesn't it? Um, if we look at kind of line, just before line 90, the repetition of you comes back again um, in, a, in an interrogatory and in in a, an accusatory way. He says, you have broken the article of your oath, which you shall never have time to charge me with. Um, and he's there's evident disapproval that's voiced um, at that point that he's like, I will never do that. And that seems to be a little bit of a threat and there's rising tension. And if you have a look at the digital theatre production, Caesar literally boils over at that point. Um, it seems to be building up to, to kind of a, a, a moment of tension um, here. Um, even Lepidus says soft Caesar. It, it suggests that Caesar has raised his voice at that point, like calm down, be quiet. Anthony, um, Lepidus feels in the kind of the middleman, he's like, nope, let him speak. 
in other words, tell me what what was the article of my oath. Um, and again, that seems provocative somewhat. He says, you know, he talks on now supposing that I lacked it. In other words, he's saying that he's he's saying that I lacked honor, but actually I, I don't believe I did. Um, so it's just something to think about. And Caesar, to lend me arms and aid when I required them, the which you both denied. Um, it's a bit of a monosyllabic response and it um, adds emphasis to the contrast in the values between him and Antony's codes of behaviour in many ways. He's like, you told me you'd do this and then you denied me. That's not honourable. Um, and actually, Antony says neglected rather. In other words, that it wasn't denying um, because I didn't know. Um, and actually, the, the pickup on that word suggests that Antony disagrees with what Caesar says. Um, and actually, there is something honest about Antony's response here. It was a neglect rather than a deliberate denial in many ways. Um, and the language that he uses in the next bit, he says, when the poisoned hours had bound me up from my own knowledge, um, and as nearly as I may, I'll play the pendant into you. In other words, that kind of um, the metaphor or the personification of it, I suppose, person poisoned hours had bound me up, um, that he uh, was kind of almost kind of drunk or not in his right senses at that point. But he says, I'll play the penitent. In other words, look, I'm 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 apologetic, I'm I'm sympathetic, I am sorry, I ask pardon, he says on kind of line one and four-ish, um, as benefits my as befits mine honor to stoop in such a case. Um he describes himself as being an ignorant motive as well. And um ultimately we see that Anthony's like, look, I'm in order to move forward, I will apologize. You're not using the right word, but like, I'm sorry, I'm here to make kind of amends at that point. And um, it's with the next bit above, if we look, it's it's whether or not we kind of see it is, is Anthony's kind of confession honest. It does feel like it is at this point. Um, his speech kind of cuts in to, to Caesar's to complete the previous line, to kind of qualify his condition in many ways, to explain um, he's trying to appease Caesar in so many ways. Um, and he kind of comes back to, to his own defence. And even Messinus um, in the next bit says, if it, if, if it might please you to enforce no further the Greeks between you. They're trying to like, can we end this conversation? Even Lepidus kind of admires Antony's speech. He says, tis noble spoken. Because Antony openly admits that he was wrong and admits that it was a flaw and he's playing penitent. He's been the bigger man in many ways here. Um, and that and that's acknowledged by the other member of the triumvirate. Um, Messinus describes the idea of like, can we forget um, the, the griefs between um, the present need speaks to atone you. And actually what Macinus's, um interjection reminds us of is that time is against them. We have to kind of forgive. You have to forgive the other person because we need to move on. There's bigger worries back. And it reminds us just as an audience that it needs to go from the personal to the, the kind of public um, threat. Um, Lepidus uh, kind of says, yes, you're right, Macinus. But Enobarbus, uh, kind of the, stirring it a little bit, says, or if you borrow one another's love for the instant, um, blah, 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 blah. You shall have time to wrangle him when you have nothing else to do. Enobarbus <laughs> um, is somewhat sceptical at that point. He's like, well, no, or you can kind of just borrow one another's love for the minute. And then when Pompey's gone, you can come back to this argument. And actually, is he suggesting in many ways that there's always going to be this tension between Antony and Caesar? Like they're not really changing their kind of personal views of one another at this point. It's not really a settled argument in many ways. It's almost just like, let's just pause it and move on. Um, and it's just something to kind of uh, come come up against uh, later on. Um, if we move on to the next bit, um, Caesar essentially is kind of, 
he comes up with it with a kind of comment on how can we remain in friendship our conditions so differing in their acts in other words like I don't know how we can move on from this because there's there's nothing that's really going to join us and he uses a, a metaphor of if I knew what hoop should st- hold us staunch from edge to edge of the world I would pursue it in other words if I knew there was something that would kind of hold us together because we're so different then then I'd try and find it and that imagery of the hoop is um is really quite profound because ultimately it's it's synonymous with the 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 marriage the wedding band the wedding ring and because Agrippa comes up on the on the spot with the plan of oh Octavius Caesar you have a sister Mark Antony he's a widow what about that that might kind of link you together it's the concept of you know blood is thicker than water in many ways um and if we look at kind of the imagery that he gives to um Octavia she's described described as admired Octavia um Caesar, like his immediate response is to kind of disregard it because he says, um, if Cleopatra heard you, your reproof were well-deserved of rashness. Um, and Antony's response is somewhat striking for us as an audience because he says, I am not married, Caesar. Let me hear. Um, and we're intrigued because we're thinking, well, if you truly love Cleopatra, why would you ever even indulge this conversation of, of marrying another woman if it's not the woman that you love? Um and actually, what we have to remember is that the marriage uh, that's being suggested between Antony and Octavia, so Caesar's sister, is not a marriage based on love. Uh, this is a political union. It holds a, a bigger function. Um, and it's it's something for us to, to kind of uh, think about. Marriage is a means of securing a political alliance. That's it. Um, and we know that Antony does and did in history marry Octavia and um, it will take on a very different uh, role in this play so it's we'll come back to that at a different point but if we look at Agrippa's speech in kind of line 133 down he says uh, it will hold you in perpetual amity make you brothers he describes it as it will knit your hearts with an unslipping knot um, and that metaphor is essentially saying that she will bind them together look Bless poor Octavia. We could be maybe saying as a modern audience, we kind of feel sorry for her. She's a bit of a pawn in in joining these two men together. Um, and she is described as, you know, being beautiful, having virtue, if we look at it as well, um, and has general graces as well. But she's kind of briefly described. Um, and in many ways, that contrasts massively compared to how Ina Barbus describes Cleopatra later in Act Two, Scene Two. Um, and ultimately, it reminds us because Agrippa, uh, not Agrippa, sorry, Octavia is pretty much her function in the play is she's a bit of a political pawn. Um, she, that's it. Um, she's kind of oblivious in many ways to, to kind of what function this will take at this point. Um, whereas Cleopatra is a totally different type of woman um, in its entirety. Um, if we look at, back to Agrippa's speech on line 140, he says, by this marriage, all little jealousies, which now seem great, and all great fears, which now import their dangers, would then be nothing. And that imagery that he uses is that the scale will be reduced. In other words, the big problems that you think you have with one another and the big je- the kind of little jealousies will, will then just disappear. Um, Antony is very clever. He's like, Caesar, will you speak? Um, and Caesar then, no, not till I hear how Antony is touched. It's pretty much like, well, what do you think? No, what do you think? It's almost like both men are, it's like a poker game. It's like, show me your hand. What, what's your feelings on this? Um, and they do need a little bit of time to think. 
and ultimately like well what power could Agrippa have and then Antony essentially agrees um at the line bit he says 155 may I never to this good purpose that so fairly shows dream of impediment let me have thy hand further this act of grace so there is that yes we'll do it and what we see on that kind of 160 just above that the both men clasp hands and that visual semiotic of a political union and a political joining is is striking there however we as an audience still see this somewhat rather uneasily. It seems to be a really weak foundation um, to form a political union on, particularly because we know both men still really haven't resolved their differences. And we know how strongly Antony feels for Cleopatra. So it just feels like this marriage to to Octavia, it's just not going to last. It feels like kind of putting a sticking plaster over a great gaping wound. Um, And we know that inevitably he will go back to Cleopatra. Um, It's very different from the original historical data and sources that Shakespeare draws upon. And in in history, um, Octavia and Antony actually had quite a long marriage and they had children. Shakespeare plays with it very differently. The marriage is very short-lived and it is barren. There is no children. And that does take on a very different dramatic function. But we'll come back to that at a later point when Antony says, I'm leaving her. I'm going to go back to Cleopatra um, in a few scenes time. So um, the two men then kind of... uh, their differences are resolved and they somewhat kind of round this up a little bit by bringing us back to, okay, Pompey, that's right. There's, there's someone trying to um, invade us potentially. And ultimately we see the three men who were came in separate um, at the beginning of the scene have kind of now joined together, albeit weekly. Um, And, if we have a look, even Lepidus reminds us, time calls upon of us, must Pompey presently be sought or else he seeks it out, us out. Um, and what we're reminded of is that essentially honour and reputation matters to men in Rome. Um, Antony even picks up on that Pompey hath laid strange courtesies and great of late upon me, that even an enemy can kind of admire someone from afar. And that seems to be what's important um, with it, with these kind of men and within this with, within this particular setting. Even Caesar does describe the idea of at sea, Pompey is an absolute master. So is the fame, as kind of Antony says. So they, they kind of praise their enemies at many point. And again, that reminder of um, sea is a is a um, a place of power and a place of battle as well. Um, and that his strength by land is great and increasing. Um, in other words, that it's it's really important that they now go and meet Pompey and try to resolve this matter. Um, and then the scene ends at, at the kind of that point or the, the mini unit within this scene ends. Um, and it will be the subordinates then will start to talk um, about Cleopatra and what Egypt was like. So that's probably a good place to pause. Um, I do recommend that you go back through this um, scene again. Um, we're going to go through the essay uh, structure on Friday's lesson two and you can join me for the next podcast on the second part of this scene. Okay so back to act two scene two and um, this time we're looking at kind of line one eight two onwards to the very end of the scene. Um, this scene is, is quite long but it's a scene of maybe two parts. The first bit is where the the, the woman the, the triumphant kind of rejoin albeit it feels kind of not forever. And then the second half is where uh, the subordinates have a have a conversation about Egypt. And uh, in particular, it's got one of the, the most famous speeches from any Shakespearean play, um, it, which Enobarbus delivers. So we're going to spend a little bit of time going through that. Um, it's quite a prolific um, exchange. So if we look kind of 185, 
they kind of ask um, Ina Barbas a little bit about Egypt. Um, and we kind of, again, get the contrast between Egypt and Rome really, really becomes quite clear in this scene. Ina Barbas even says, we did sleep day out, um, made the night light with drinking. It's kind of the antithesis of Rome in it, in many ways. Um, it's full of pleasure. It's full of excess. They um, are awake at night and asleep during the day. So it's, it's the opposite. It's, it's, it's a party place in many ways. Um, and there's lots of rumours, again, the idea of, you know, did you at, at breakfast eat eight wild boars, um, but there were only 12 people? Is this true? And again, that's an image of kind of excess um, and hedonism at that point. It's, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's pleasurable in, in many ways. It's kind of the imagery that we get. And actually, Ina Barber says, this was as a fly by an eagle. We had much more monstrous matter of feast. So actually there's kind of playful um kind of inversion of no actually we had we had more than that um it was even bigger um and more excessive than you even think it was um and there's a there's a kind of tone of pleasure and it's a real contrast with the the formality and the tone of the of the previous scene with the triumvirate at that point um and then they describe you know the idea of they move to Cleopatra she's she's the one that they want to find out more about and actually what we have to remember is Cleopatra is is almost a bit of a celebrity type figure. Um, she's a woman which is always filled with kind of, you know, rumor and gossip and people want to know what was it true and what she really like. Um, and they they kind of ask Ina Barbas for some firsthand information about her as well. So we, we have to kind of think about the, there's something enigmatic um, and fascinating about, about Cleopatra. And Ina Barbas says I'll, I will tell you and this is the famous kind of um speech the the burnished throne speech or the barge speech um and th this is probably one of Shakespeare's kind of famous passages um in terms of uh, all of his texts and all of the plays that he's written this is this is one of the most famous ones um and before we kind of have a look at it if you haven't yet opened the file in uh, the teams area there is a section on it which is called um dates and sources Antony and Cleopatra so I would I would really encourage you to open that up and have a look at it because what we see is that actually Shakespeare, is not necessarily inventing this description. Um, he's using artistic license and dramatic playfulness and imagery and metaphor as a way of giving that historical account meaning. So um, Shakespeare was looking at Thomas North's um, uh, version of, of the, the historical information that was written down by Plutarch. And if you have a little look at, um, you can see Plutarch's original source in which he described exactly what um, Ina Barbas is about to describe. Um, and it's very much in many ways an explicit literal parallel to it, um, it's, but it's much more factual in terms of its description, whereas Shakespeare is allowed to um, use hyperbole um, and descriptive language to, to more dramatic effect in many ways. So we're, that's what we're going to have a little look at. But read through that article. I think it's a really, really interesting one. Um, and it's a really good one for AO3 because you need to see where Shakespeare is getting his information from. He's not making this up. This is this is an actual account um, and a historical approach, um, which, which was a gift for Shakespeare. So Eno Barbus describes the barge, the boat that you sat in like a burnished throne burned on the water. And actually what's really interesting about that image is that it's a bit of a paradox that the throne itself burned on water. Um, it's pretty much impossible. And it suggests again that almost kind of um, the poetic license that um, Shakespeare's using from Plutarch's original source also stresses that Cleopatra's almost got a supernatural quality about her, that her literal 
boat can burn on the water. And obviously the imagery of a burning is that it's um it's a it's it's a golden boat that with the the Egyptian sun and it beating off the light of the water is it looks like it's almost on fire at that point. Um and that kind of fire and water um imagery is really, really striking. Um and that paradox is is really quite visually enthralling. And we have to remember we can't see that on stage. But actually, the language that's been used by Shakespeare should allow us to visualise that really, really clearly. Um, so it's, it's, it's almost kind of narrative and it's focus at that point. Um, and if we have a look again, even structurally, it's shifted from the speech between Mecenas, Enobarbus and Agrippa was in prose um, previously. But now Enobarbus's language shifts from prose to verse. And it is linked with the kind of the, the heightened language that's being used at this point and the kind of spectacle um, of Cleopatra appearing for the first time and what she looks like. Um, if we look at the, the kind of imagery of the boat, so the poop was beaten gold, purple the sails and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. And again, you can have a look back that these are descriptions pretty much from um, Plutarch's original version as well. Um, but there's this beautiful, erotic and sensual description that the um, the seals themselves make the winds lovesick. So that personification of, of the natural world around them, that Cleopatra almost has this fantastical um, impression on the natural world around her. It's really quite striking. Um, and we get this um, imagery then of, the, of sen sensory language. So oars were silver, which to the tune of flutes kept stroke. And as the water which they beat to follow faster as amorous of their strokes. So that imagery of um, them trying to row through uh, the, the river, the, the river Sidness at that point, that flutes and music kept them in, in kind of rhythm and in beat with one another. But the imagery of the of the um the beats and the stroking became faster and faster and, and almost kind of the, the flutes were amorous at that point. And um, there it is also quite sexual or quite erotic too, that idea of a faster and faster. And that that's kind of the the effect that Cleopatra has on the world around her. Um, and then he moves on to describe not the boat and the kind of the, the world, but actually then her for her own person. And I love this description of it beggared all description. In other words, that there are actually, there are no words which can actually depict truthfully what she was like. Um, and that's that that kind of hyperbole that comes with that is, is rather striking. Um, but he, he gives it a go. Um, he says she did lie in her pavilion, cloth of gold of tissue. And it's this bit over picturing that Venus where we see the fancy outwork nature. And actually what he uses there is that hyperbole to say the image that we get of Venus in art or in sculpture. He says that essentially she overpictured that in other words like she's even better than that than the goddess of of kind of love herself and that she almost is transcends um the the image image of of a goddess in art too so again we know that previously she's been just kind of described or alluded to as as a venus-like figure um that's a repeated idea here um that she is her beauty is almost kind of supernatural and again it's worthwhile thinking about is this an absurd exaggeration and um, we've been kind of prepared for it already so it doesn't seem implausible in many ways um so it's just something for us to kind of um to think about and obviously it would be worthwhile doing a little bit more research into um 
Venus and how she was depicted because she was known for using her beauty and sexuality to her advantage and having many gods and heroes fall under her spell that one of the famous love affairs is with Mars who we know has been um, Antony himself has been alluded to and so it's something to think about and actually Venus is a a really striking goddess um, and and how she's kind of depicted in art and then how she's depicted in this as well Um, but if we go back to Enobarvis's speech so he then moves out to the description um, of uh, the, the kind of the boys and her wedding women. So they're described as smiling cupids. And again, that kind of godlike perfection at that point. Um, the little, god, you know, the gods, gods of love as well. And that metaphor is, is used and, and developed for how with fans... They, they, they're they kind of fanning Cleopatra and it's described as the wind did seem to glow the delicate cheeks which they did call and that's a really striking image because actually it's the opposite to what a, a fan should do a fan should cool you down but here they're glowing um the delicate cheeks um so in, in many ways they kind of they heat or they add um fire where they should cool and again there's something so, like quite sensual or quite erotic about that image and that she's literally burning um while she's while she's um on this barge and she literally defies the rules of nature in many ways um and if we look at the next little bit so that you know even Agrippa's kind of says oh rare for Antony in other words gosh Antony's really struck gold with a with a character like this um and Ina Barbas moves on to describe her gentlewoman as being like Nerides so like sea nymphs or mermaids as well um and pretty much we see that the the kind of classical idea of beauty in which art perfects nature um that it kind of any imperfections of her character are kind of eliminated by this that she's almost kind of made divine or inhuman at one point um there's a real glamour and a bewitching nature to the description of cleopatra at this point um she kind of seems to defy humanity uh, in, in many ways here um and Shakespeare is, uh, is able to do that pretty much through poetic license. He uses it through lots of extended images and metaphors in this scene. Um, and it's very different to maybe the Cleopatra that we've seen as an audience, um, that we have been able to see her frailties in many ways and her more human behaviours, like her erratic nature, her ability to lie, her ability to manipulate. But even then, it's striking to kind of see someone who's got so many complex facets to their to their character she's a really multifaceted character which you can't say she's boring in any way um and if we keep moving back to Ina Barbas's speech so he describes even from the barge a strange invisible perfume hits the sense of the adjacent wharfs and then it's the imagery of that Antony was sitting in the marketplace alone whistling into the air in other words minding his own business whistling and then looked out and then he'd he'd gazed on Cleopatra too and made a gap in nature so almost like even the air around her is raptured by her and again that hyperbole that comes with it it's almost like time stops made a gap in nature that literally when he clapped eyes on her time ceased for a moment at that point um so yeah um and then in the next bit this is where it kind of steers away a little bit from the original source in Plutarch where it describes when Antony saw her um Antony sent to her invited her to supper she replied um so this kind of uh, imagery of it, it, this is where it deviates essentially from the original historical um referencing at one point um if we look at Agrippa's interjection, you know, rare Egyptian, um, in many ways, 
you could argue, is it a barbed insult? Because we know that the Roman view of Cleopatra isn't positive in, in any shape or form. Um, and kind of we have to remember what we've seen in Act One of a of a Roman view of Egypt must affect how they how they view this, that there's something fascinating about her, albeit they kind of reject her on 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 moral basis in many ways. Um if we even look on to the next the next bits of kind of line two two three five-ish, Agrippa describes her as royal wench. And again that paradox that he acknowledges her both for her royal status but also by describing her as a wench denigrates her to to almost like the role of a prostitute or a whore. So that paradox comes into her, um, his view of her in many ways. And again, that that very much that Roman view of her. Um, and he develops it as well when he says she made great Caesar lay his sword to bed. He plowed her and she cropped. Um, and again, the, the kind of the the metaphor that he's using at that point was he made Caesar get, you know she made Caesar give up the fight uh, somewhat and but but the the kind of sexual innuendo is really quite striking and uh, he lay his sword to bed plowed her she cropped the kind of metaphor of the child with that she had with Caesar so Caesarian is kind of referenced at that point um and it again that imagery that you know she she kind of demasculated um, that that kind of great man. Um, she's bewitched Antony. She's also been able to bewitch Caesar at that point. But it seems to be um, somewhat negative. Um, if, if we want to have a look at that, and again, maybe that Agrippa actually he only sees her power as maybe sexual attraction. And to me, I've written down is that maybe a misunderstanding of the the power that Cleopatra has as a character because Ina Barbus doesn't necessarily focus on that. Um, it's it's something bigger than than just sexual attraction for Cleopatra. It's her literal capacity to change the natural world in many ways or um, that kind of supernatural quality that she has as a monarch. And it's just something to think about. Um, but we're reminded that with Agrippa's interjection, we get a, um, a commentary of a Roman view. Um, which is very different maybe to Enobarbus. Um, and we have to think about, we will come back to Enobarbus at a different point, but in many ways, what role does he take on? Um, he's a bit of a truth teller. Um, he he comments on things as he actually sees them um, and doesn't seem to be very much swayed by what you should think. Um, so actually, is he much more trustworthy in terms of his account of Cleopatra compared to someone maybe like um, Agrippa's? Eno Barbus continues on to then describe her. She, he says, I saw her once hop 40 paces through the public street and having lost her breath, she spoke and panted. She did make defect perfection. Um, that he even says that her faults are perfect. So to make defect perfection. So her running and being out of breath is perfection in itself at that point. Breathless power, breath, breathe forth. Um, that kind of... That, even when she's breathless, there's power and force behind her breath. And that's really quite striking at that point. Um, Messinus interjects, and it's this next bit, which I love. Um, he says, now Antony must leave her utterly because we're reminded of the that political imperative interrupts us. It almost brings us back to earth a little bit. That like, oh, well, now he's going to have to leave her. He has to marry Octavia as a, as a way of kind of joining the triumvirate. And Ina Barbus says, never full stop not that single solitary sentence is, is really quite emphatic he will not um and brings a little bit of tension as well we're reminded that actually Antony has this really enigmatic relationship with Cleopatra and it doesn't seem to be that Judy will 
necessarily sway him or force his hand. Um, and if we look at her, this this next line is one of the, the famous kind of sentences to describe her. Age cannot wither her nor custom steal her infinite variety. There's again that kind of supernatural quality uh, to her that she can't be decreased by age. Um, and I love that description of her infinite variety. Um, she certainly is. She's a character which is based on paradoxes um, and the hyperbole um, in Ina Barbas's language at that point stresses it. Um, you know, that she's both sympathetic, but the character that we can be frustrated by, a character that loves intensely, that is drawn to anger intensely as well. Um, so she is infinite in terms of variety. Um, she's she's spicy in many ways. Um, and if we look, he compares her to other women. He says, other women cloy the appetites they feed, but she makes hungry where most she satisfies. In other words, like people just want more from her. Um, she's She's exciting at that point um and even the description of that she um that comic hyperbole that the holy priests bless her when she is riggish and riggish means lustful so in other words even priests bless her when she's kind of immoral in many ways that she kind of defies the rules um of the of the natural world and and also the supernatural world um and Messianus kind of reminds us then the contrast of if beauty, wisdom, modesty can settle the heart of Antony, then Octavia is a blessed lottery to him. So that triple of beauty, wisdom and modesty is is um, what Octavia is kind of personified by. Um, and we can certainly say that Cleopatra is beautiful, is wise, but modest, definitely not. Um, it suggests a real contrast to the description that we've just had of Cleopatra. But we have to remember, you know, Octavia was described in the, earlier in the scene within about two sentences and Cleopatra is given some of the most beautiful poetry in the entire play um we have to think about where our allegiance should lie and our allegiance as an audience lies with Cleopatra because we know that she's the great love affair that Antony has not Octavia in many ways um and the question that we're kind of asking as an audience is will Antony ever be content with Octavia when you could have someone like Cleopatra um I know where my money money's lying and I know who I'd rather be um linked with um instead so we kind of have to think about that as an audience that we're, we're left with that big question or is it really a question it feels like it's kind of a, a feat accompli in many ways um, but what the the scene ends, they kind of say, you know, let, let us go, good and Barbas, humbly, I thank you so. So it kind of ends at that point, um, that we're we're left somewhat almost inquisitive as what to whether the union that seems to be solidified in this scene a little bit that actually Ina Barbas's speech kind of disrupts it in, in so many ways for us as an audience. Um so yeah, we'll leave it there. We'll come back to Act 2, Scene 3 in the next podcast. But have a look back through um, the document that I've emailed you on Thomas North and Plutarch's uh, version. Do have a little look at that. Do a little bit of research into Venus as well. Um, and if you're just curious as to kind of how many playwrights and even Hollywood has tried to kind of capture the the entrance of Cleopatra, which this speech does, check out the Elizabeth Taylor um, uh, entrance in the 1963 film. It was one of the most expensive films ever made. Um, and you'll get a sense of the kind of the extra nature of Cleopatra um, and how she's described. I think for, for many of us, maybe is this how we're going to enter the world when we come out of isolation? Let's make an entrance like Cleopatra does. Why not? Um, right, folks, talk to you soon.